as we have been making our way through the book of Judges, we've seen this cycle already. Uh, the cycle is that Israel's uh, following the Lord, then they forget the Lord, and they join in the worship of the gods of the peoples around them, and then the Lord sends them an oppressor who oppresses them. They cry out to the Lord for help. The Lord brings a judge, a deliverer, uh, who delivers them, and then the cycle gets repeated Last week, we saw how those oppressors came from all directions. Uh, there was an oppressor from the north, and Otniel was raised up to deliver them, and then an oppressor from the east and the south, and uh, it was Ehud who was raised up to deliver them then, and then there was an oppressor from the west, and Shamgar was raised up to deliver them then. And we looked and saw that when we have half-hearted repentance, we make a mess. <laughs> there's just a mess of things. And there's these ways in which even in the deliverance, there's this, that just seems like it's not quite right. It feels weird. It feels like there's a tension of, is this really all right or not? And that's because of the mess that is made of things. Now, this morning we come to Judges chapter 4, and here's our lesson for today, and we're glad to have boys and girls here with us, and I'm going to make it so it's real easy for you to write it down. <clears throat> God is the winner over impossible situations. God is the winner over impossible situations, because what we're going to see in Judges chapter 4 is an impossible situation. There is no way that Israel is going to make its way out of this mess. It's impossible, and yet God delivers them. Now, we're going to do this in three ways this morning. First, we're going to read the text. We'll read the whole passage, and then guess what? I have some maps and pictures to show you. And we'll tell the story through some of those maps and pictures, and then we will do a deep dive into the specific verses in the text, okay? So Judges chapter 4, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Jabin and Sisera together, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, <clears throat> Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. 
And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. <clears throat> now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside into, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. And now for the fifth and sixth grade boys among us. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Please have a seat. God is the winner over impossible situations. We're presented with an impossible situation. There's technological superiority, 900 iron chariots. Israel has zero. They aren't able to defeat, and in fact, what's happened here is that this entire northern region 
with all of its trade routes, is now under the control of a guy named Jabin, the king of Hatzor. Hatzor is this little purple underlined spot right here. It's a very strategic spot on an international highway. If you wanted to think of an interstate in ancient times, this was it because it was the route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. So all of the money passed through here and Hatzor was kind of at the head of it. There's, a, there's another little town, it's, kind of, it's really a, quite a sweet spot, called Kedish, just up north. It's also an important place, but not nearly as important as Hatzor. And Barak comes from this place just north of Hatzor, so he is feeling it. He's feeling the total weight of Jabin's control and of these 900 chariots, and it's just awful. It's terrible. We are going to see the battle take place at this circle right here, Mount Tabor, and the valley down through here, which you'll know as the Valley of Armageddon. I call it the Jezreel Valley. And there's a, a, a battle that takes place here between Sisera and his 900 chariots and the 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun that uh, Barak is in charge of, and they defeat these chariots, and these people all flee. And this uh, Sisera flees all the way back up here to a place near Kedesh, very near to where um, uh, Barak is from, and he goes into the tent of a nomadic person. The Kenites were nomads. I'll show you a picture of that in just a second. This river that's talked about is called the Kishon. It drains the Jezreel Valley, this valley of Armageddon, into the Mediterranean Sea. So there's, it's very flat here, as you'll see in a second, and it drains into there. Um, Deborah, <clears throat> meanwhile, is living way up in the hill country, largely unaffected by all of this action. And she is at the Oak of Deborah, it says, I think it is. Uh, the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and um, Bethel. And she's sitting down here um, largely unaffected by what's going on, which will explain some of Deborah and Barak's different opinions on things. This is another close-up here that just identifies uh, Kedish up to just a little bit north of Hatzor, and Mount Tabor here, and this river Kishon circled here that drains into the Mediterranean. And one more picture of this Jezreel Valley, this Valley of Armageddon. You'll see that Mount Tabor is actually on a major route that goes all the way up into Mesopotamia. There's a, a neat little picture I'm going to show you in a second of how important this route was all through history. It remains really important. The Israelis have built major highways through there, and it's not because they want the people to move nicely on their interstate system. It's to be able to move tanks when they're under war and under attack. Um, okay, so time for a commercial. Uh, this is Hatzor, and the guy doing the pointing there is my colleague Steve. Uh, he and I lead these trips to Israel. We have one planned for March, and uh, Notice how happy and intently all of the students are, are taking in the instructions about what happened at Hatzor. Steve is pointing to the north. I'll show you in just a second what he's pointing at. And uh, um, we have room in our uh, trip for more people. 
the first deposits due at the middle of July. So if you're interested in going, email me and let me know. We can get you in. Um, commercial over. This is looking north now, uh, and you see how flat this is? Flat areas make for really great chariot tree, right? It's where it's hilly and bumpy that chariots are no good. And so that's why they are controlling the trade routes. They got the technology that Israel doesn't possess. If you're wondering what those stones are that are sticking up there, that's a storehouse that dates to the king, to, to king Ahab. So um, that's a little bit later. But what you'll see when you go to these sites is that there's stuff that is there that goes from modern times all the way down to the time of Abraham. And so you're just studying these places with a three-dimensional view of time added to it as well, which is kind of fun. But here's something that's fascinating. At Hatzor, uh, archaeologist Yigal Yadin, who by the way was also an Israeli general, um, discovered these standing stones. There's uh, the one in the middle actually has arms upraised to the moon god. There's a man over here on the left who's making an offering. There's a lion figure over on the right. All the other stones are in line there, and there's an altar there in the middle. That's how, uh, what they discovered, and, and it's in, this is in the Israeli museum now. Now, here, you might say, well, why is this important? This that you're looking at right there dates to Jabin, king of Hatzor, from Judges chapter 4. I'm amazed by that. Sometimes, some of you are going to be going to a school or a university that will tell you that this book is meaningless and is just a book of fables. I show you this stuff to say that there is material and historical evidence to demonstrate that this book is true. And what's fascinating to me is that over the years, that has become more and more undeniable. So now, guess what? The philosophy of the university has changing. Now, instead of saying that the Bible is historically inaccurate, the argument now is made is this. History is meaningless. History is bunk. There's no purpose to it. Why would we study it? Because what we're after is being able to craft a future in our own image, in our own likeness. That's the way this argument is shifting. So those of you who are younger, please, I beg you, pay attention to the picture you're seeing here, not for the details of the fact that this is how Jabin worshipped his gods, but for the fact that this demonstrates that things that happened in the Bible are true, and what that means is that Jesus who died on the cross, and the Bible says it's to pay for our sins, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, and that he rose bodily from the dead, that that also is historically true. It's what Francis Schaeffer terms true truth. Don't let anyone by the cleverness 
of their arguments take you away from the things that are true. Well, let's look at some pictures. Uh, This is headed south on this major route that heads from Egypt to Mesopotamia. We're just south of Hatsor here, and we're headed south. And I just want to point out this, where where this road ends up going is right here, and these are called the Horns of Hittin. There's a pass that goes through here that leads from the Jezreel Valley up north to Hatsor. And... um, when you, look at, when you look at that, what you have to remember is that at those horns of Hattin, a major battle was fought in the 1180s between the Muslims and the Crusaders, okay, that changed the dynamic of the land altogether, okay? And you, what you have to recognize is the land hasn't changed, the issues haven't changed, where people are going, it hasn't changed, what they want hasn't changed, hasn't changed at all, Okay? And the, and the geographical realities are still there and always will be. A um, couple other pictures here. Uh, this is from Megiddo, the city, uh, the, the, the site of the, the town of Megiddo, looking toward Mount Tabor. So we're looking uh, to the northeast here, and Mount Tabor is in the background here. So you can see, again, how flat this is and how chariots are like, yeah, You get 900 chariots and the other guy has none, it's pretty tough to win, right? Uh, This is an impossible situation. This is Mount Tabor, right here. Where I'm standing is Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. The backyard of Jesus was the Valley of Armageddon, this Jezreel Valley, okay? That's what he looked out on. In Luke chapter 4, this is where they took Jesus after he had preached in the synagogue and they didn't like what he said and they were going to throw him over the cliff. This is the spot. They're going to toss him over the cliff, right? And he's, he could, he can remember the stories of Deborah and Barak and, and the defeat of Sisera here. Um, This is from Mount Carmel, way to the west here, and it's looking east And the only reason I point it out is, again, to show you how flat the terrain is, but also this right here is the river Kishon that is headed out to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, And then you wonder, what in the world is this? Well, it's kind of a uh, pixelated picture, but it's a a, uh, Bedouin encampment. And I just want you to see a little bit about how the Bedouin live um, they have a pen, whoops, they have a pen here where they have the sheep and the goats, and then this is their, where their living quarters are, and they've kind of made more of a permanent settlement here because you see some sheet metal along with goat hair set up there, but the lifestyle hasn't changed a lot, though there are some things that are different. Uh, notice the tractor and the car and the satellite dish. Uh, those, those are... Those are, a, those are a little bit different, but uh, the fact is that what you're, when you think about um, JL and her tent, there are still people who live like that, um, somewhat like that, even to this day. Well, those are all the pictures and the maps. Now, let's dive into the verses. First, we have the impossible situation described. Verse 1, the lesson remains unlearned. They've made a half-hearted repentance, and they've made a mess of things. 
they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And of course, what happens? They're sold into the hand, enslaved by Jabin, which is more of a title than it is a name. I mean, it's a name, but it's more of a title. Uh, there was an earlier Jabin in Joshua chapter 11 who lived about 100 years earlier that Joshua defeated and destroyed. And so, a lot of people will say, well, the, the Bible's just confused. No, no, no. It's a dynastic name. It's a name that is also a title that came with the kings of Hatzor. Hatzor is a hugely important place. At the time that Jabin, this Jabin in Judges chapter 4, was king of it, it had about 40,000 inhabitants which is 10 times larger than Megiddo. The commander of Hatzor's army was a man named Sisera. Uh, he's a regional commander, so much for the conquest of Israel of the land, because now we've got this regional Canaanite commander who has standing armies, he has a military structure, and on top of that, it has military and technological superiority. We are just moving out of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, and some peoples have mastered the use of iron, and others have not. And Israel's enemies have, they have mastered it, Israel has not. And so Sisera has iron, he's got chariots, he's controlling the terrain of these flat areas. So once again, verse 3, the cry for help goes up from the people of Israel. 900 chariots of iron, he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. I want you to think for a moment about how impossible this situation is. Israel's got no leadership. They've got no chariots. They've got no iron. They've got a vast enemy. They have a divided country. It's all split up. And it's been that way for 20 years. Just put yourself in that situation and realize just how impossible the, of a situation they were. It was impossible. There was nothing they could do. So let me ask you some penetrating questions. What impossible situation are you in? How did sin contribute to getting you into that situation? And how much time will it take before you cry out, to God for help. What impossible situation are you in? How did sin contribute to that situation? And how much time will you live in it before you cry out to God for help? So stubborn was Israel that they were able to live, able, they lived under that cruelty for 20 long years. And they had come to a place where it was just impossible. There was nothing that could be done. So let's think for a moment about the weakness of human saviors. In verses 4 and 5, we're introduced to Deborah, who's a prophetess. Uh, Miriam in Exodus 15 is described as a prophetess. Huldah in 2 Kings 22 is described as a prophetess. And Deborah is described as a prophetess. No other judge in the book of Judges, is described as a prophet or a prophetess. She's called the wife of Lipidote, or Lapidote, yeah, Lapidote. Um, 
The word lapidote could mean fiery, so it could mean that she was a fiery woman, you know, just kind of a person with some real spunk. It could be that her husband's name was Lapidote, and it's the wife of Lapidote. I leave it to you to figure that out. She's judging Israel, and this appears to be judicial. She's sitting under a tree in the hill country, and people are coming to her for judgment. This idea of sitting in judgment is described of Moses and her, and I don't think anybody else in the Bible. But there appears to be no military authority that she possesses. She's not in any way of a, a military captain or, or leader in any way. In verses 6 and 7, she summons a fellow named Barak, who's from way up north of Hatzor, as I mentioned, that area circled in green. She calls him to come down to her way down south in that hill country. Do you remember? She's, she's, not, she's pretty safe from all of that cruelty. And she gives some instructions to Barak. Verses 6 and 7, uh, in the ESV, it describes it as a question. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go and gather your uh, 10,000 and I'll draw out Sisera and I'll give him into your hand? Question mark. There are other translations that don't translate it as a question, but either way, the question, even if it is a question, is a rhetorical one. Deborah is saying, look, go do this and God's going to deliver you, right? Their instructions. Assemble at Mount Tabor, which is a prominent spot, avoiding detection through the valley. Use the tribes that are most deeply affected, Naphtali and Zebulun. God's going to draw out Sisera. The battle be at the, be at the river below Mount Tabor, and God's going to win the battle. Now, in verses 8 through 10, Barak is understandably unconvinced. Deborah is understandably confident. Here's why. Barak is understandably unconvinced because he's lived under the impression, uh, the oppression, and he knows the power and technological and military superiority of his enemy. In short, he's scared. Deborah, on the other hand, has lived up in the hill country, way down south from where all that's taken place. Um, she's largely escaped the issues of dominance. In short, she may be ignorant of what it's, how hard it is. Both express a view of faith in the Lord. Deborah speaks as a prophet. Barak wants the prophet with him. He says, I'll go to the battle, but you got to go with me. If you go, I'll go. If you don't, I won't. Deborah says she'll go, but the glory of victory will go to a woman, not to Barak. Um, by the way, the name Barak in Hebrew means lightning. So I just want you to think for a minute about his name. He's General Lightning, okay? General Lightning is not going to get the glory for this military victory, okay? The military call-up is based in Kedesh, Barak's hometown. So that's where the, the call-up takes place in verse 10. <clears throat> Let's look at how the Lord is victorious in verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 is a little bit of an interruption in our story. The reason that the interruption happens here is because the author doesn't want this information, the author wants you to get this information, but he doesn't want to have you troubled by that 
when he gets to the part where it matters. So he's telling it to you now to foreshadow it so that it doesn't interrupt the flow of the story a little later. What's he saying? He's saying this tidbit of information. There's a guy named Heber who had separated from the Kenites, who lived way in the south, even farther south than where Deborah was. And he had moved way, way up north and had pitched his tent near Kedesh, near where Barak lived. Um, this is important because um, he's, where, he's not where he's supposed to be. What's this guy who's from way far south doing way far north? Why? Well, first, the nomadic travels in search of pasture. He's a nomad. The Kenites were nomads. They shepherded. Uh, they were people who just moved around wherever the, the uh, pasture would take them. Uh, he's probably because of a lack of water. This will become interesting when we get to chapter 5 next week. In verses 12 and 13, Sisera learns that Barak has mustered his troops at Mount Tabor, <clears throat> and so he calls out, it says in verse 13, all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. Do you see how the text is wanting to remind you, military, military and technological superiority. That's what the text is wanting to remind you of. And all the men who are with him. This is impossible, right? <clears throat> They, uh, Barak has left his hometown and they make for Mount Tabor. Verses 14 through 16 then, Deborah says to Barak, Up, oh, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So he comes down from Mount Tabor, 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So, Deborah gives the word of the Lord. Barak follows that word. He heads down the mountain. And what happens? Notice, the Lord routes Sisera and all his chariots and army. The Lord gave them into Barak's hand. The Lord went before them, and Sisera flees on foot. All of that great technological might, the chariots aren't working. Now, we'll learn why next week. Some of it may have to do with the way that Sisera did the battle. Maybe he climbed up on Mount Tabor as the men were coming down and chariots don't do good on hillsides. But there's something else that happens that the Lord brings that we'll talk about next week in chapter 5. All of Sisera's men are killed. All those charioteers, all killed. But he himself is not yet dead. Now let's look at a conclusion to this story. <clears throat> that fits the times of the judges. Sisera, instead of heading toward his hometown, flees north. And he ends up at, just so happens, just so happens that he gets to the tent of Jael, who's the wife of Heber the Kenite, who had moved up there. Remember this, this guy in verse 11 that it had been told, this little interruption to the story, he had moved up there. Um, that's all of a sudden he's he's there, and um, he does so because Heber and his boss Jabin are in peaceful relationship. As I mentioned, the Kenites were nomads, so they lived in tents. They were shepherds. 
The most famous of them was Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, who's named here in verse 11 as Hobab. It's just another name for Jethro. And according to Judges 1.16, the Kenites lived among the Israelites, even becoming Jewish. That is, that they followed the Lord. They, become, they became followers of the Lord, these Kenites. And the Bible regards these Kenites in a very positive manner, a very positive fashion. You might ask the question, why would the Bible refer to these Kenites in a positive way when all the other peoples around, they describe as great enemies of the Lord? What is going on here? Well, the answer is that the issue of separation of Israel from the peoples around them was not racial. It was religious. That when peoples around them followed after the Lord, that was great, that was fine. But the issue of separation being religious when those peoples did not follow after the Lord, then we got to get rid of them, they're enemies. The Kenites became followers of the Lord. So, Sisera is exhausted, and he's also on the run. He goes into a woman's tent, which is not typical of ancient Near Eastern habit or hospitality. But he's so afraid for his life that he hopes to hide among a woman's tent, and in doing so, he'll be, he may avoid detection that people wouldn't even think to look in the woman's tent. And typically, even today among the Bedouin, you'll have a male side of the tent and a female side. And so he's on the side, in the tent of, of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Uh, in verse 18, Jael offers typical ancient Near Eastern hospitality to Sisera, and he's unsuspecting. She says to him, turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me and do not be afraid. So, he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the word rug here may be a mistranslation. Um, <clears throat> I, think it's, I think it's much like a mosquito net, only it's a fly net. Um, if you've ever been in a Bedouin tent, you'll know why I say that. Uh, there's a lot of flies, and Middle Eastern flies are not like Midwest U.S. flies. Midwest U.S. flies come and land on you, and you go like this, and even before you get close, what do they do? They fly away. Uh, Middle Eastern flies land on you, and you go like this, and they don't even move. They're like, oh yeah, show me something important here. You know? So if you're exhausted from battle, sweaty, you go into a tent that's been, you know, sheep and goaded several times, um, there's a lot of flies around, right? And so I'm thinking that she, she gets the whole thing ready for him so that he doesn't have any flies on him. Come, sit down and rest. Take a load off. And he says to her, ah, give me a little water. You know, I'm thirsty. So she opens a skin of milk and gives it to him for a drink. Covers him with the fly net. Uh, we'll find out in chapter 5, verse 25, I'm going to suggest that he actually, she actually may have given, her, given him some yogurt, um, which is often used to refresh exhaustion. Uh, yesterday, I was on the Midwest Food Bank bike ride, and uh, after lunch they, uh, at lunch, they served us yogurt. So, fortunately, they didn't have any tent pegs around. Uh, anyway, it puts Cicero out, right? He's exhausted. He falls asleep. 
uh, before he does, in verse 20, he gives instructions uh, to, that fit in with the privacy that's accorded a woman. Um, he, uh, he says, stand at the opening of the tent if a man comes and asks, is anybody in here? Say no. Just say no. She goes, got it. And now we come to the fifth and sixth grade boy verses. Jael takes a tent peg, and while Sisera is sleeping in exhausted unconsciousness, <clears throat> she pounds a peg right through his temple. And the Bible's very graphic in its description. It comes through his head and enters the ground. Um, question, is such a thing possible? <clears throat> One commenter suggests that this is equivalent in force to the force needed to drive a stake through two to three inches of concrete. <clears throat> so they're, of course, saying, well, that's not really possible. <clears throat> but let me say in response, it was the job of women in this period of time to set up and strike the tents. So Jael was an expert at, at tent pegging. Um, she did not miss the sweet spot on the stake, okay? She didn't miss it. Uh, she's experienced at handling the hammer. Furthermore, I'll just note that when I lived in Israel, uh, there were women in the old city. The old city is just a bustling place. It's just packed with people. And there were these women who would carry huge loads. You know, we're talking 150 pounds of stuff. And they're like coming three at a time and they make their way through the crowd and the crowd just parts. I mean, they just shove people out of the way, these ladies. And uh, my friend Steve, that I lead these trips with to Israel, uh, we were walking through the old city one day, and this happened, and we got shoved out of the way. And he was a big Minnesota Vikings fan, and he said, man, the Vikings need these ladies for their offensive line. I mean, we're talking tough people, okay? So this JL, it, it does not surprise me at all that she would do this or had the capability of doing it. In verse 22, it just so happens that Barak is nearby. Just as this happens, Jael goes out and meets him. He, she invites him into her tent to see the man that he is seeking. Uh, they apparently know one another, right? Come, I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. Uh, she, living in a tent near Kedish, which is where Barak is from, knows the whole story. And Barak goes in, and there lies Sisera, still fixed to the ground with the tent peg in his temple. All of this, the whole text, everything leading in chapter 4 is leading up to one sentence in verse 23. It's all leading to this sentence. You ready for it? So God, on that day subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. God subdued Jabin. You catch it? Everything in the, in the text is leading up to impossible situation. Who can deliver us? God delivers us. God is the winner over impossible situations. You're asking as you make your way through the text, well, who's the hero here? Who's the victor? Is it Israel? Eh, they're pretty disobedient. No. Is it Deborah? 
Well, maybe a little bit better answer, but she didn't participate in the military victory at all. Is it Barack? Well, he was kind of scared. Is it JL? Well, that's kind of weird to think of that. She just did some kind of weird things there. I don't know that this is about that. Who's the victor? None of these. God subdued Jabin, king of Hazor, and the result is that the people of Israel are able to defeat Jabin until he is utterly destroyed. Now, I want to take a few moments to draw some applications. <clears throat> the first one that I'm going to draw, I, um, for centuries, no one would have had to address this. Literally for centuries. Until the last 50 years, no one would have even addressed this at all. But as a result of modern times and the nature of how feminism has impacted our culture, one of the applications that we have to think about is, what does this say, this chapter say about women in ministry and about gender roles? We need to be careful here. Here's why. The text here is a description of what happened, not a prescription of what ought to happen. It's not making any prescriptive statements of here's how it ought to happen. It's just stating what did happen. So, to argue on one side that the only reason Deborah was there is because it was a time filled with rebellion and failure, uh, it might make some sense to us, but it, the text doesn't say that. Deborah is clearly a prophetess without any qualification made in the text that she's there because men somehow were failing. That's not what this text says. But at the same time, to argue that because Deborah is there as a prophetess means that women prophetesses are the normal way for the people of God through all time is just as empty of scriptural support. There are three of them in the Old Testament. And Deborah's not a warrior. The men do the fighting. She recruits Barak to do the job that she can't do. Further, remember that Israel was both the people of God and a nation state. What may be good for Israel as a nation state may not be good for Israel as the people of God. God blesses the function of women in nation states that he may not in the leadership of the people of God. That women are equal to men in dignity, value, and ability goes without saying. Though I say it because there are people who are almost certain to misunderstand me. But no women, for example, served as priests in the Old Testament. This isn't because of inequality or lack of ability or some discriminatory misogyny. It's because God created roles and relationships. In the church, we thankfully don't have to be a nation state, and so we are left with only the consideration of what is best for the people of God. And the New Testament is quite direct on this matter. Women served in the New Testament as prophetesses and as deacons, but there are no women elders. Just as with priests in the Old Testament, God withholds one particular office from women in the New. We need to be careful not to read our modern world into the text of Scripture, and we need to be careful not to take every Scripture and twist it to conform to our understanding of reality. 
And may I suggest that this is only going to get harder and harder in the days ahead in the American church where gender and roles of gender are more and more confusing to American society. And I'll just add one other warning here. In many conservative Christian circles, there seem to be many more things that are denied women that are not scriptural. And that too is wrong. So, that's that application which for hundreds of years probably was never addressed in a text like this. But what is the point of this text? Why is it in the Bible? Well, it's here to tell us that God wins over impossible situations. Half-hearted repentance leads to a mess, but it's a mess that God can fix. (laughs) And when you're in an impossible situation, guess what? There may have been because of some things you did, but God can fix the mess. God uses anything and anyone at His disposal for the purpose of His victory. Think about what He used here. He used a prophetess, but she does no fighting. He used a military leader, but he's a bit of a coward. At the very least, he feels that he and God are not enough. He uses a non-Israelite woman who is a fiercely independent, free-spirited sort. You know, we can argue all we want about the ethics of Jael's actions, her deception, her violent killing of Sisera. The point of the text is not to answer those questions. Half-hearted repentance leads to messes. But the point of the text is that J.L. is a woman of action, and God uses this woman, flawed as she is, to accomplish his purpose of his victory over Jabin and Sisera. And let me remind you what gets pushed into the background by the time we get to the end of the story. Guess what gets pushed into the background? The 900 iron chariots. All of the big worry at the beginning of the chapter, 900 iron chariots seems not to matter anymore. God uses a woman with a tent hammer and a tent peg. Sometimes we think that we have so little that we won't even try in serving the Lord. It's just too big. There's 900 iron chariots out there. What matters is not what you have. What matters is what God will do with what you have as you surrender it to Him. The most impossible situation ever presented to you will be your sinful condition. It is impossible to remedy. Jesus said it's impossible for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, a rich person. And by the world's definition, all of us in this room are rich. It's impossible. can't be done. But God does the impossible in Christ Jesus. His mercy is always more. Heavenly Father, we pray that today we'd recognize just that thing. We lay before you our impossible situations and ask that you would take what we have, we offer it to you in your service, and you would take whatever little we have and use it for your glory to resolve the impossible situations that we are in. And Lord, we think especially 
of the impossible situation of salvation from our sins. We cannot save ourselves. We give you our lives in faith, believing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. We believe he rose from the dead. And so we believe that the impossible is real. We can be your friend. We can know you. We can experience and have eternal life forever with you. Not because we have great iron chariots, but because of your mercy. It's always more. In Jesus' name, amen.